Hey, good morning, church. How are you? You guys awake this morning? We, we threw some of you for a little loop. We started closer to on time this morning, and uh, some of you that was a little surprising for. Uh, I'll just warn you, we're going to more and more try to get towards our actual start times that we publicize is going to be when, when we start church. So you might either wake up a couple minutes earlier, leave your house a little earlier, whatever that might be. Um, but we're excited to gather, excited to worship together if you've been with us these last few weeks, we've started a new series through the book of Genesis, and today we are going to be in Genesis 4 and 5. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab those. If you're on an app, you can go ahead and get there. Genesis 4 and 5, where today we will talk all about, get ready for it, I wish Jeff was up here to give me a drum roll, we're going to talk all about sin. Hey, I got one, woo. Woo. Out of that, I was expecting more amens and cheers and excitement. Uh, we've, got, we've got some chapters and we've got an issue that we, let's just be honest, we hate talking about sin, but we're going to have a conversation today. Last week in Genesis 3, we got introduced to this concept of sin, right? Adam and Eve believed the serpent. They didn't believe God. They disobeyed him. And for that, they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, not only last week did God kick them out, I don't know if you missed this, from Genesis 3, verse 24, here's what happened when he kicked them out of the garden. He stationed a cherubim east of the Garden of Eden with a flaming, whirling sword to prevent them from going back in. Like, God is serious about sin and the consequences of sin. And this week, we've got the story of Cain and Abel, and we're going to see more. But it made me wonder this week, as I was preparing and studying and spending time in this passage, it made me wonder, because it is clear what God's perspective on sin is. He makes it very clear to us how he feels about sin, but it made me wonder about myself. Do I find myself as concerned about sin as God is? Do you find yourself as worried about it, as concerned about it? Is sin really that big a deal? Does it really have that much impact around us? Like, what is sin, and, and what person, and what book gets to tell me that what I'm thinking or what I'm doing is wrong? Right, the world around us says, you do you, you be you, whatever feels good, do it, whatever you think is right, that must be right for you, right? And that option sounds a whole lot better than some God who wrote some book telling us what's right and wrong. Is sin that big of a deal? Right, there's a lot of people, you might find yourself saying this, there's a lot of people around me that are doing things much worse than me. Like, look at them, don't look at me. It's only a little white lie. It's only a little extra help on that test. It's only one extra glance. And I don't even know her, and I don't even think she saw me. Or maybe as last week in our text, maybe Adam and Eve would have said, well, it was just a bite of fruit. We hate talking about sin. And you know what we hate even more than that? We hate talking about our sin. And we hate being confronted with our own sin. We want to dismiss it and we want to dis diminish it and we want to distract others away from it. And I think, and, and I've been pondering this and dwelling on this a lot this week. Church, I think our lack of understanding about the seriousness of sin I think part of it is a belief that we don't think our sin is that harmful. We don't think our sin is that hurtful. 
So let me ask you this. As we get started today, let me ask you this. How much impact do you believe that your sin really has? How much impact for yourself and for others around you do you believe that your sin really has? Think about your sin for a moment. Think about those things that you know you do, you know you think about, that you know you say that are different than God wants you to that are different than what God expects of you, how much impact, how much of an effect does your sin really have? We're gonna wrestle with that this morning. We're gonna see that this morning. And so it's, it's maybe not gonna be the most fun conversation we've ever had, but here's my ask of you. Here's my plea of you. Hang with me. Like, stay with me, because even in the midst of a hard conversation about the darkness of sin, our Bible provides us hope. Our Bible gives us light in the midst of darkness, and so I hope that we can see that today. So Genesis 4, let's begin reading it. We've got all of Genesis 4 and 5. We're only going to spend most of our time in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The man, that is Adam, the man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and for his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. The book of Genesis is a book of firsts, and in our chapter today, we have the first baby being born, and we have the first set of siblings, and of no surprise to the parents in the room, pretty soon we're going to have the first sibling conflict. We also in this chapter have the first offering being made to God by humans, but the question came into my head today, or, or this week, why did Cain and Abel offer this offering to God? Right? God had not prescribed a sacrificial system yet. Like God had not told them as far as we can tell from the text. God had not instructed them to bring offerings. So why did they do it? And maybe even more curious, why didn't God like Cain's? Why did he have a problem with it? I know for me, as I read through narrative stories in the Bible, I have a tendency to read a story about Adam and Eve and see all that happened to them in chapter 3, And then I close chapter three and move on to chapter four and I kind of forget about who's around. But the reality is that in most narratives from the Bible, those characters are still around, right? Who are Cain and Abel's parents? This is an easy one you can actually answer. Who are Cain and Abel's parents? Adam and Eve. And where were they? Right here the whole time, right? Adam and Eve raised Cain and Abel. They taught them, they helped them grow up. They told them what was right and what was wrong. They took care of them. And what had just happened to Adam and Eve in chapter three? They sinned and they were thrown out of the garden. They had experienced paradise, unity with God, intimate relationship with God. And they had sinned and they had lost it all. So what do you think they told Cain and Abel at the dinner table? What do you think they talked about when they were laying their kids down to bed at night? You better believe that they were telling them all about the glory in paradise. What it looked like to honor God and worship him. Why it was so important to obey him. 
and to bring offerings to him. I believe that Adam and Eve would have been bringing offerings to God as an act of worship, as an act of honor to him. And I think Cain and Abel had watched their parents do it. And so they began to follow suit. Right? John MacArthur put it this way, that Adam and Eve would have been the best evangelists that this world had ever seen. Right? For you and for me, when we're telling somebody about the hope that can be found in Jesus, we are telling them about something that we believe and trust will happen someday in eternity. We aren't speaking from experience. I don't know about you guys. For me, I've not been to heaven yet. So when I tell somebody about heaven, I'm going based on the glimpses that God has given me, not based on experience. But Adam and Eve, in the beginning of Genesis, before they sinned, they experienced purity, intimacy, holiness, righteousness, perfection. They had it, and they lost it. And so I believe they would regularly teach their kids, regularly tell their kids, God is worth your honor. God is worth your worship. God is worth your obedience. And so they would bring offerings to him. And so Cain and Abel did the same thing. And look what happens. God is pleased with Abel's offering, but he isn't with Cain's. Why not? Like, why not? The text actually doesn't tell us. There's been a bunch of speculation as to why God did not have regard or did not like or appreciate or accept Cain's offerings. It could have been that, that Cain brought the last fruits, like the leftover produce instead of the first fruits. It could have been that. We really don't know. But, but here's, what, here's what we do know. It's not, what the, it's not the what that Cain brought that was the problem. It was how Cain came before God. It, it was his posture before God, which we actually see play out in the next section. Read verses six and seven. Verse six, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. We don't know what Cain brought as an offering that wasn't acceptable to God. What we do know is that it wasn't right. It wasn't acceptable and he's furious about it. He's despondent about it. And God says, why? Why are you like that? Why are you responding that way? Remember, when God asks a question, he's not searching for information. He knows what's going on in Cain's heart, but he's, giving, he's taking a chance to teach him and invite him to give him the opportunity to repent, to turn away, to get rid of his bad attitude or his, his bad thoughts or his bad actions, whatever he is doing. He's giving him a chance to change. We learned in Genesis 1 that God is the supreme authority. He is the creator. He is the authority. He has the right to judge right and wrong. And he, in this moment, judges Cain's heart. And he says, that's not right. That's not okay. That's not acceptable. But look, God doesn't condemn him. Even in his judgment about him, he doesn't condemn him. And he could have. But he extends mercy even in the midst of this challenge, he gives Cain a way out. He warns him. He says, sin is crouching at your door and it wants to devour you. He's pleading with Cain, turn away from that. Run away from that. The language that's used in verse seven about this sin that is crouching at the door, it's this, 
imagery of like a wild animal or a demon that is just like waiting for the moment to pounce. Just like sitting outside your door, waiting for you to just crack that door open and let him in. And he's going to jump in and just devour him. Right? There's that phrase, its desire is for you. Now, normally you hear a phrase like that, that my desire is for you. That's like a good thing. It's not in this verse. It's not in this context. It would be more comparable to like me saying, my desire is for a glazed donut. Right? Like, I'm going to eat it. I'm going to eat it as fast as I can, and I'll find another one if I can, and I'll eat that one too. Right? My desire is, is not for its good. I don't care about its feelings. I don't care about how the glazed donut's doing at the end of the day. I just want it to satisfy my hunger. <laughs> that is the way that sin looks at you and the way that sin looks at me. It's not for our good. It's not for our benefit. It wants to devour us. And God is telling Cain, He's calling out to him. He's saying, Cain, watch out. Watch out. Resist. Flee from it. And church, listen. The same thing that Cain, that Cain was hearing from God as God was calling out to him, pleading with him. He's looking at you. He's looking at me and pleading with us, saying, sin is crouching at your door and it wants to devour you. Resist it. Push away from it. Run from it. Through the transforming work of Jesus, we can. Did you know that? If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, through his work in your life, you can resist sin, even when it doesn't feel like it. You can run from it. You can flee from it. You can experience victory over sin, but the reality about sin is it's always there, lurking waiting for you, ready to pounce, ready to bring you trouble, wanting to devour you. Think about your struggles for a moment. What are those things that cause you to stumble, that always seem to trip you up? What is it in your own life that you just can't seem to get away from? You can't seem to deny Identify it in your own mind in this moment. Identify it. Call it what it is. Name it. It is sin. That's what it is. Cain's sin was anger. It was likely bitterness and jealousy. And unfortunately for Cain, it doesn't just sit and crouch and wait. We see that it gets him. Read verse 8. Cain said to his brother, Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were there in the field, Cain attacked his brother, Abel, and killed him. Cain's fury hatched a plan to kill his brother. The first set of siblings led to the first major family conflict, and it led to the first murder. Right? Cain's heart towards God wasn't right. That's where the problem started. And then he was called out on that and invited to repent and change his ways, but he didn't. He denied that he was struggling. He denied that he was wrong. And that brought more anger and more bitterness towards Abel. And eventually that led to murder. What potentially started as something small grew into something much larger. And that's what sin does, doesn't it? Sin, when left unchecked, when we don't repent of it, when we don't turn away from it, it doesn't just like get lesser and then just disappear, does it? It only grows and it expands and it multiplies. 
because that's what sin does. That's where sin goes. This morning, we've got a big idea, and it's actually kind of split in half. And so I'm going to give you the first half of it right now, and it's this. The impact of sin goes far. The impact of sin goes far. In Cain's case, it went to the extreme of murder. It took him down a path you would never imagine. It will take you to a place you would never want to go. That's what sin does, and it impacts more people than you would ever imagine that it would. Back at our church in Iowa, uh, one of our elders had a group of guys that he would just meet with regularly, that he was discipling and, and talking with. And he was telling me one day about a breakfast they were having that became one of the most like, intense and awkward and important and valuable breakfasts they ever had. And, and here's what happened at that breakfast. Uh, there was a guy, Matt, and I, I doubt these people will listen, so I'm not going to use code names. There was a guy, Matt who um, showed up at this breakfast and he said, guys, uh, my wife and I, we've been, we've been trying to make it work for a long time and it's just not working out anymore. And so I'm gonna divorce her. And, um, you know, we've had a lot of conflict and the kids have been exposed to that. They had three kids at the time. And um, it's just, it, it'd be better for them actually, you know, if they didn't see their mom and dad fighting all the time. And so we're just gonna, we're just gonna go our separate ways. We, we think that's best. And there was another guy at the table Preston, who was much younger actually than Matt, who just got this like serious look on his face. He was, he was frustrated and he began to tell Matt. He said, Matt, my wife's parents got divorced 10 years ago and I am still today dealing with the relational impacts of that brokenness. Matt, you are being selfish and you are being lazy and you're saying that this is the best thing for the kids, but you're only thinking about yourself You're not fighting for your wife and for your kids and for your relationship. This is not okay. This is not good. And eventually he's like like getting a raised voice because he is so frustrated and because he experienced the hurt of it. He knew the impacts of his wife's parents' bad decisions because the impact of sin goes far. It doesn't just stop with you. It doesn't just stay in that moment. It goes far. See, Matt, in those conversations, in those decisions, he really was convinced that his sin only impacted him. And he was dead wrong. Church, he was dead wrong. Because sin goes farther than that, much farther than that. You might not know it, church, but I struggle with anger and impatience. Most people don't get to see it, but my family sees it. And they see it. I've got four kids. Guess how many of them struggle with anger and impatience? All four of them. Why? Because the impact of my sin goes farther than me. It reaches beyond to kids and spouses and friends and coworkers and neighbors, to anyone around me, to anyone around you. Your sin goes farther than you think. But even more importantly, than the conflict that it creates in our earthly relationships. When we sin, when we struggle, it creates brokenness with God. That's where Cain found himself. Look at verse nine. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Remember, God like, he wasn't looking for Abel because he wasn't sure where Abel was. I don't know, he replied. And here's what Cain says. Am I my brother's guardian? It feels like 
Cain got a little sarcastic with God, which is a bold move. I'll give him that. Um, God wasn't actually looking for Abel. Again, he was giving Cain a chance to say, God, I did something wrong. I sinned. I hurt my brother. I killed him. God, would you forgive me? Would you help me? He says, am I my brother's guardian? And the answer is yes. Yes, actually you are. He's your brother. You should love him and protect him and provide for him, not get angry and kill him. Cain doesn't admit he was wrong. He doesn't ask God for forgiveness. He lies. He shifts the blame and the responsibility, and he clings tightly to his sin. Verse 10, then he said, this is God, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. The impact of Cain's sin goes far. That original small seed of bitterness and jealousy and anger, it turned into fury and murder and now deceit. Adam and Eve have now lost their son. Cain has lost his brother. God's anger and wrath is now upon Cain, and the offspring of Cain would follow suit. The impact of Cain's sin, it goes far. And church, we're fooling ourselves if we think we're any different. The curse that God gives in this verse, it sounds an awful lot like the curse he gave to Adam, doesn't it? For Adam, the curse was that working the ground would be painful and hard. But here was the relief for Adam. At least it would bear some fruit. Like God didn't tell Adam, the ground that you work will never bear fruit. He just says it's going to be much harder than it used to be. For Cain, it was more severe. It will never again give you its yield. You can work it, and you can plant, and you can water things just right, and you can do exactly what is necessary to grow food from the ground, and it will never work. So what does that mean for Cain? It means he's going to be hungry. It means he isn't going to have produce to trade for other goods and services. It means he'll have to travel and wander and work really hard just to scrape by. Right? When God says that he'll be a restless wanderer, don't think like carefree world traveler, which sounds like a lot of fun. Think homeless, grifter, hungry. He'll be a wanderer. It's a harsh punishment, isn't it? But look at what happened. It could have been harsher. Cain killed his brother. He killed him. God would have been perfectly justified to kill Cain, right? Later on with the Israelite people, God established a law for them that says, anyone who strikes a person so that he dies must be put to death. God would have been justified to kill Cain, to look at him and say, well, it's a life for a life. Abel's dead, and so now you are dead. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He gave him mercy that he didn't deserve. He gave him grace when he didn't have to. And, and God actually continues to give more mercy and more grace. Keep reading with me. Verse 13. But Cain answered the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. Remember, Cain, you actually deserve that. But he's kind of complaining 
about the punishment. And then here comes God. Then the Lord replied to him. Oh, and if this was me, if I was God in this moment and I watched Cain murder his brother and then I spared his life and gave him a punishment and then he complained about the punishment, I would have... I would have probably taken care of it right there in a really creative way. Lightning, earth swallowing him, whatever I had, I would do in that moment. Here's what God does. The Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. He didn't have to do that. Cain didn't deserve that. Cain had killed his brother. God had punished him for it. He complains about the punishment. God would have been justified in murdering him, but even in his punishment, he extends mercy. Even in the consequence, he extends grace. We don't know what this mark on Cain was. Again, a lot of speculation about something that doesn't matter that much. He could have given him leprosy so nobody would touch him. Might have done that. Could have given him a big horn coming out of his head so he looked really scary. We don't know. It really doesn't matter. What's important is that God still protected him. He extends mercy. And it's a reminder. It had to have been for Cain. But I hope that it is for me and you as well. It is a reminder of the irony that when we sin and we are deserving of punishment, when we should expect to receive the full wrath and anger of God, that he is the only one that can protect us from his wrath. He is the only one that can shield us from the consequence that we deserve. When Cain was dealt a consequence and he was fearful of what might happen, the only person that he could turn and ask for help is who? God, because God's the only one that could help him. You and I, if we commit one single sin, one, if we are guilty of just one sin, then we are deserving of the full wrath of God. Romans tells us that the wages of sin or the deserved payment for our sin is death. And not just physical death on this earth, but eternal separation from God. We are deserving of that. And his wrath should scare us a little bit. It really should. It should cause us to tremble, be fearful. We fully deserve his wrath. But if we want shelter from that wrath, there is only one place to go. There is only one person to turn to, and that is God himself. And listen, this is the news you need to hear. Church, he delights in providing that protection for us. He delights in saving us, in shielding us, in protecting us. Here's the rest of our big idea for you this morning. The first half is important. The back half is far more important, and it's this. The impact of sin goes far, but the grace of God goes farther. Sin reaches far. It reaches deep into our hearts and deep into our personal relationships with the people that we love, with the God of this universe, but listen, while sin reaches far, it doesn't go farther than grace. It can't. It won't. It doesn't. Where sin produces shame and bitterness, it is no match for the grace of God, which produces freedom and hope. Where sin breaks relationships and divides friendships, 
The grace of God has the power to heal and restore. Listen, where sin provides space, division, brokenness, distance between us and God, between me and God, between you and God, only grace, only grace can bridge that divide. Only grace can bring us close. Cain didn't understand that. He didn't get that in this text. But you and I can. We can. We can read the story of Cain. We can see the example of Cain and say, I'm going to go the other way. I see what you did there, Cain. I'm going the opposite direction. We can do that. Look at verse 16. It is one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. Verse 16, then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. East of Eden. Away from the Lord's presence. Away from his protection. Away from relationship with him. Away from his blessing and his care. East of Eden. I don't know about you. I don't ever want to be in that place. I hope for you that you never want to be in that place. But we've got to recognize that's where our sin is taking us. That's where our sin wants us to go. That is where our sin leads us. Over the rest of chapter 4, we get to see the rest of the lineage of Cain. And we're going to see the pattern of sin continue. They just continue to be consumed with themselves and doing their own thing. The, this pattern of sin, it just continues down through the family. And I don't know if Cain's family lived close enough to Adam and Eve for them to see what was going on, but imagine the grief that Adam and Eve felt. Watching their kids, watching their grandkids, watching their great-grandkids continue to turn their backs on God. Continue to sin and disobey and dishonor God. Adam and Eve, who felt the reality of what it meant to experience perfection and then experience lostness and brokenness. Watching their kids, watching their family choose that same path. But there's hope. Keep reading. Jump down to verses 25 and 26. The story begins to turn. Verse 25, Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. A son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. And then here's the, ver here's the phrase. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. They began to call on the name of the Lord for mercy, for help, for relief, for forgiveness, for restoration, for healing, for grace. They began to call on the name of the Lord. Through the line of Seth eventually comes Noah. And through the line of Noah, a long time later, eventually comes Jesus. And while the impact of sin goes far, deep into our personal lives, deep into our relationships with people on this earth and with our God. While sin goes far, the grace of God goes farther. It goes deeper. Guys, there's no brokenness that grace can't fix. There is no sin that grace can't forgive. There is no shattered relationship that grace can't restore. And there is no sinner that grace can't redeem. And maybe you need to hear that today as you sit in your seat wondering, 
wondering if you've gone too far, wondering if you've done too much, wondering if there is anyone on this earth who would ever love you, let alone the perfect and righteous God. As you sit buried in your guilt and your shame, you know how far sin reaches. But maybe what you need to hear today is that grace reaches farther, goes deeper. Adam and Eve are still alive for most of chapter 5. Right? They saw the depravity of the line of Cain, and yet now they also see the line of Seth, who begins to call on the name of the Lord for rescue and salvation. And I believe that Adam and Eve never stopped being those evangelists that kept telling their family, worship him, honor him, give him praise, obey him, listen to him, follow him. Adam and Eve knew perfection, and they knew brokenness. And I believe they pleaded with their kids, pleaded with their grandkids and their great-grandkids. Follow God, believe him, honor him, love him. Because all the while, Adam and Eve were holding on to that promise that they had received in chapter three, that one day their offspring would crush the head of Satan and by doing so would conquer sin and death. They believed that promise and they held on to it. Church, the impact of their sin and Cain's sin and everybody else's sin, it was far-reaching and deeply impactful, but oh, the day was coming. Oh, the day was coming, and they believed this. When grace and mercy would go farther, it would go deeper, and Eden would be restored. Church, that day is still coming, and we've got to believe that truth, and we've got to have that hope. I don't want us to be a people that trivializes or minimizes our sin, right? When we wrestle with that question of how much impact does our sin have, the answer is universally true for all of us, and it's more than we know. It's more than we can measure. It's more than we can understand. Like our sin has consequences, and they have consequences today and tomorrow and next year and for decades, that is the reality of our sin, and we've got to be people that call sin what it is, that we would repent of it, that we would turn away from it, that we would find a friend who loves us and loves Jesus and confess that sin to them, to ask them for help in walking in purity and righteousness. Genesis 4 is true that sin is crouching at our door, ready to devour us, but Romans 6 is true also, and you've got to hear this. Here's what it says, for sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. If you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your savior, you have received freedom from sin. You have received forgiveness for sin and sin does not have to rule over you any longer. Let's not be a people that minimizes the sin in our life. My sin and your sin required that the very son of God who was perfect would have to go and be killed on a cross to pay for the punishment of our sin. That is true about our sin. But let's not be like Cain. Let's, see, no, let's not be like Cain who denied his sin. He ran from his sin. He tried to hide his sin. Let's be a people that confesses it, that seeks forgiveness for it. But then let's leave it buried in the tomb. Let's leave it buried, done away with, forgiven, paid for. And then let's stand up and walk in newness of life the way Jesus did when he was resurrected. 
Imagine with me for just a moment, church. Imagine if we were a people that would run to God instead of away from him when we struggled. That rather than being afraid of him or ashamed before him, that we would realize he is the only one that can provide hope and protection and forgiveness and grace, and we would run to him and not away from him. Knowing that we deserve his wrath, but even more than that, knowing that he will provide grace and forgiveness that only he can give. And knowing this, that God utterly delights in giving us mercy. He's not angry with you. He's not disappointed in you. He's not eternally frustrated with you. If you turn to him, run to him and come to him and say, Father, would you forgive me? I was wrong. I failed. I screwed up again. You have got to know that he utterly delights in forgiving you, sheltering you, providing for you, and giving you grace and hope. He loves to do that. And I hope that's good news for you today. A conversation about sin is not very fun. But a conversation about grace should give us hope and joy and cause us to celebrate. Because that is good news to us. And that good news, it should make us want to scream that from the mountaintops. Right? Your sin goes far, but the grace of God goes farther. And that's good news for you. And guess what? It's good news for your neighbor, your coworker, your classmate, your roommate, anybody who doesn't know him. That is good news to them as well. And so Salt Church, can't we be the ones that tell them? Can't we be the ones that brings that message of hope and grace? Oh, that would delight our Father in heaven and bring us much joy to watch him move. Know this, church, your sin, the impacts of it, it goes a long ways. But grace always, eternally goes farther. Remember that truth today. Let's pray.